You're listening to Ludophilia. My name's Richard Moss. Rather than the standard interview and research-driven storytelling I normally do here on Ludophilia, this is a kind of experimental piece on a travel experience I had last year. I went to Singapore for a week with my fiancé back in July, and we were surprised to find lots of playful touches, despite, or maybe because, of the reputation that Singapore has for law and order. And I thought it'd be nice to put together a sort of part travelogue, part essay thing about it. You can find an accompanying photo essay for this story at ludophilia.net slash Singapore photos. I'll be back with a new episode sometime in the next few weeks, I hope. And I plan to put out plenty more ludophilia after that, all throughout 2019. Until then, I hope you enjoy my impressions of Singapore at play. Singapore is a land of contrasts. Beneath the glistening skyscrapers, most of which house the offices of one or another of the city's hundred-plus banks, you'll find tired-looking but enormously popular food markets and other eateries that trade in delicious comfort dishes. Food that tastes like home, wherever that is for you. Something to help you cope with the rapid pace of life in a city where everything is dialed up to 11. Fragrances, spices, hot, cold, old and new. Your body assaulted with odours and flavours and feelings. Some pleasant, others not. Outside, the temperature varies between warm and hot. The humidity likewise shifts from high to suffocating and back again. While inside, nearly everywhere, air conditioners suck out the moisture rendering the humidity about as low indoors as it is high out, while they drag your body temperature down to something more palatable to us humans as we go about our days. Concrete surrounds you everywhere, but this is not a grey or a dull city. There are colours and textures in the architecture, the walls, the roads, the people. The old Singapore seems alive and well, happily coexisting, perhaps, with the new. Hundred-year-old misshapen and colourful commercial and residential precincts tucked alongside decade-old ones, clean lines, smooth paving mere blocks away from the hotchpotch up and down of footpaths remaining from the old town. The city, once divided on racial lines by design, with separate neighbourhoods from Muslims, Europeans, Malays, Indians and each of the major Chinese ethnicities, still remain somewhat partitioned. You see predominantly Chinese in Chinatown, and mainly Indians in Little India, and suddenly the food and architecture in each area has the flavour of its heritage. But perhaps owing to the high number of travellers that stream in and out of the city-state, nearly everywhere is at least somewhat multicultural. And even far from the touristy areas, nowhere we went felt particularly unwelcoming. These were my impressions, at least, from a week spent in Singapore. Not enough time to know a place, for sure, but I think plenty of time to gain a feel for it. Which brings me to the thing that surprised me most about Singapore. For a city-state so firmly attached to rules, order, authoritarianism and discipline, Singapore is surprisingly playful. 
In some ways, it's probably a design solution, a method of softening the hardness of the rules. On trains, where even drinking water is forbidden, you see cute cartoon mascots that playfully encourage graciousness with rhyming catchphrases like the disco dancer, move in Martins, move in to fit in, or stand up Stacy Stern on your feet off your seat. Little touches of play appear all over the city, whether it's the electric scooters you see people zipping around on or the beautiful street murals that poke fun at local culture, or the storefronts and billboard ads that add a touch of whimsy to something otherwise very serious. It's not just these seemingly random bits of play that I came across, either. I arrived there fully aware of an interactive art installation in the National Museum, which I'll come back to later, as well as a multi-storey toy museum, the Mint Museum of Toys, which celebrates that most recognised of playful artefacts, the toy, in a manner that strikes me as very much unplayful, though fascinating nonetheless, and I'll come back to that one later too. But by fate or fortune, or maybe a bit of both, my partner and I also happened upon some things that we weren't expecting. And my favourite of these was a delightful exhibition, exploring the past, present and future of Singapore's playgrounds, encompassing 100 years from 1930 to 2030. Right from the start, it drew me in. Walking into a small alcove that introduced the exhibition, we saw through an arched doorway a colourful mirrored hallway of light, projected in two tones of green on the floor, and multiple tones of blue and pink on the ceiling and the walls. Inviting, colourful, bright, and I suspect purposely non-gendered. An introductory message explained, and I quote, the story of Singapore's playgrounds is the story of how we got together, where we forged friendships old and new, played our favourite games and got to know our neighbours. It noted also that Singapore has the highest number of playgrounds in the world per capita. Along the hallway, I stopped to admire various artefacts and photos of playgrounds from a bygone era when kids would make their fun with chalk and marbles and simple wooden toys, including some regionally specific stuff, like gassing. It's used in a game where you try to either keep your gassing spinning for longer than the other players, or you try to knock other players' gassing out of a circle drawn on the ground. My Guangzhou-born fiancé recognised a colourful toy that looked like a shuttlecock. It would be used in a game called Capte, which is like hacky sack, you try to keep the toy in the air as long as possible by kicking it with your feet. She remembered playing it in China as a kid. Further along, I learned that purpose-built playgrounds entered the Singaporean public consciousness in the 1920s, an idea imported from the United States, where they'd emerged a few decades earlier. People in Singapore thought playgrounds would act as the lungs of the city, that they'd improve the quality of life and provide relief from overcrowding. In response, city commissioners installed swings and other basic play equipment in People's Park. It was popular, 
and earned the praise of local newspapers. But just 10 years later, in 1934, the playground was removed to make way, get this, for a police building. Other playgrounds had already begun to appear elsewhere around the city, however, and authorities encouraged people to make good use of them, to enjoy the clean air and open spaces, for they believed overcrowding caused the spread of tuberculosis. And so playground building accelerated for a while. As best as I could tell, it took a backseat to other issues and priorities during the Second World War, which would make sense given Singapore's proximity to Japan and to its occupation by Japanese forces from 1942 until September 1945. Fast forward to the 1960s, and the emergence of high-rise housing had caused a new problem. The sense of community was fast vanishing, as residents lost their connection to the places they inhabited, and by extension to the other people that inhabited these places with them. Playgrounds again offered a solution. Their designs inspired by heritage and culture, as well as the tropical environment, which posed weathering problems through all the heat and moisture constantly in the air. And the designers paid special attention to the goal of forging closer ties between children and families. This step ensured that playgrounds would become a central part of Singaporean identity. And the exhibition playfully revealed various finer details and descriptions, buried by sand that a few kids took delight in constantly pushing around. Doubly so once they noticed that I was actually trying to read said descriptions. I'd be left with a few seconds at a time to take in as much information as I could before they'd cover the panel anew. Different trends came and went, I learned. Some playgrounds adopted solid materials, like marble and granite, others more traditional steel and wood, and others still went with plastic or rubber as their primary material. One design adapted the nursery rhyme Humpty Dumpty, while another looked like a gigantic watermelon slice. I was drawn to one designed by a German architect that made a climbable pyramid out of ropes. It had a concave slope meant to catch anyone who falls, and would send them tumbling safely into a sand pit down at the base. A much safer, yet still cool variation on a climbable metal spaceship that my school had, and then tore down, when I was growing up in Melbourne. There were apparently lots of different playground designs inspired by animals, folktales, nature and architecture, and between 1970 and 1983, the Housing and Development Board made it a policy to have no more than three playgrounds of the same design per precinct. I suppose because variety really is the spice of life? I don't know, doesn't say. Looking at the photos, the models, newspaper clippings, and the documentary videos on display, I felt a strong sense that these playgrounds and the others described that were built in the years since were places to dream, to imagine, to explore, and as intended, to connect. I think the best playgrounds inspire, challenge, and they enthrall in an open-ended way. And they make exercise fun, 
And so many of these playgrounds looked and sounded to me like they did exactly that, with the added bonus that many of them were placed near outdoor exercise equipment and other amenities so that people of all ages could come together and play. The archival materials included in the exhibition showed the hand-wringing and challenges you might expect. People argued on and off over the decades about safety versus fun, not that the two were mutually exclusive, and about the playground's role in society. But I was relieved to see that at no point in any of the newspaper articles or curatorial notes that I looked at, and I looked at nearly all of them, were playgrounds denigrated as unnecessary. And I liked that the exhibition ended with a question. A question about the future of playgrounds. Not only in how they might look, how they might be designed, but in what role they could play in our society. And how they can, or indeed whether they should, combine the digital and the physical together. It had been, as I said, pure luck that brought us to that playground exhibition, which I spotted in a brochure while we were looking for an interactive art exhibition by the Japanese and Singaporean collective Team Lab. Actually, one of a few of their works that we saw in Singapore. This one was a huge digital art piece called Story of the Forest. But the more interesting one from a play perspective, I thought, was Future World which was located in the Art Science Museum. This exhibition began with a mesmerising timed animation projected on the walls all around us, 360 degrees. Then it moved into another incredible wall projection, this time of an infinite animation of a famous Japanese woodblock print, before it opened up into an incredible wider space that was filled with fun interactive installations. I'm talking things like a hopscotch course builder, which you could then try out after you build the course, or a table where little people live, where the little people would react to hands or objects placed on the table and get more animated and playful as more and more stuff competed for their attention. And things like the knee-high cubes that would change colour as you moved them around. There was a point to all of this. Each area had a deeper thinking behind it, and the whole lot of them together aimed to explore and reflect on how play fits into everyday life. Play, as we explore in every episode of Ludophilia, is a part of personal as well as societal development. It's integral to the lives of adults as well as children. It's one of the best ways we learn, form relationships and solve problems. And it was wonderful to see a museum engaging in this in such a, well, engaging and playful way. The same can't really be said, I hate to say, for the Mint Museum of Toys. This toy museum was a strange place. Like it was torn between being a museum, a private collection that's open for viewing, and a mere series of memorabilia cabinets of the sort you might find in the hallway when you enter the offices of a company with a proud history of making stuff. 
there was little that I'd call playful about the design of the exhibits themselves, set up mainly as rows of tall glass cabinets with shelves, grouped according to theme, one theme per level of the building. But even so, the place was a fascinating window into the objects of play that have entertained people around the world for generations, and also a little bit into the historical context of these artefacts. It's an interesting contrast to see two mainstays of childhood play, the toy and the playground, dealt with in such different ways. And I can certainly appreciate the desire to legitimise, to treat the object with reverence befitting a great work of art. But I couldn't escape the feeling that this toy museum, for all the fascinating snippets of history it offers to the diligent visitor, has missed an opportunity to provoke deeper thoughts about our relationship with toys around the world. To explain what I mean, consider this. The museum houses regional variants of so very many licensed products and so very many different types of toys, providing in the process cool glimpses of how globalization blends with local culture and commercial factors to create hybrid experiences. But there's little context or discussion for how these fit together or what value they had as cultural artefacts. Did kids in Korea delight in their cheap red muscle car Batmobile with a blonde-haired Robin? Did they have another Batmobile available to buy if they wanted something more authentic? Did they even care about Batman? Why did the US and the UK have so many ray gun toys in the mid-20th century? What made sci-fi adventures like Buck Rogers and Dan Dare so popular with kids of that era? And just how much a part of cultural identity are these different sets of toys? I could do some independent research and probably find at least partial answers to these questions. But they're just a few of the many, many questions left unanswered and unacknowledged at the museum. It's wonderful to have a huge collection of physical artefacts on display together, to marvel at and examine through glass cabinets. It's neat to learn that this little chunk of plastic is worth $10,000, and that hunk of metal is worth $500. To see how toy design has varied over time, to look at the rarities in toy licenses that you knew as a kid, and to know that there's only one other known copy of that weird toy in the corner. That stuff's all cool. But I moved through the exhibit longing for more, just desperate to get some real history, some real cultural context, to go with these brief historical factoids on typed cards and plaques stuck up along the way. Because toys aren't meant to be art. They're designed as objects of play and imagination. They're artefacts, usually though not always mass-produced, intended for our amusement. That means they have history. 
history beyond their creation. Whether they mean to or not, toys are products born of deep-seated political and cultural norms, like the racism and slavery rooted in the long-popular gollywog, an all-black doll, that the museum display recognised as a controversial artefact, but did little to engage with beyond a half-dozen descriptive sentences telling me such. When what I really desperately wanted to have them was something that would show me how Gollywog could have been so popular for a century. And then, only at the dawn of the civil rights movement in America, be suddenly recognised around the world as racist and rapidly fall from grace. That was no isolated example. The museum curators clearly have an awareness of the deeper meaning behind toys, and of the cultural forces that have unknowingly steered toy industries around the world. But at no point did I find an instance of a deep dive into a specific toy's background or context. They've shown me the toys, which is great, but they've only told me they matter. And I want to be shown that. I want interviews and documentaries and oral histories and design documents and news clippings just like they had at the Playgrounds exhibition. And maybe that's still to come, but it's not there yet. Somewhat ironically, I saw the words, every toy has a story, emblazoned on a poster on one of the levels of the toy museum. Yet I didn't learn the story behind a single one of the thousands of toys I saw there. Where are the stories of ownership? the toys, the people who played with them, where are the stories of how they were made, who they were made by, why they were made. The nearest I got in one of the best parts of the museum was in a small section that housed dolls made by impoverished Chinese women in the 1920s, women who had escaped a life of forced prostitution and were apparently given a chance of a better life by the Westerners who founded the Door of Hope mission in Shanghai. But the closest this section came to giving me a story, and not just a few bits of heart-wrenching trivia, was in a few unlabeled photos and untranslated newspaper articles mixed in amongst the dolls. It was like this everywhere that the real world made an appearance. Historical newspapers placed alongside relevant toys, but with no questions or prose or archive audio or video to stimulate your thoughts. Just things like a front page headline, Kennedy assassinated, glibly placed alongside a toy modelled on the late US president. It was a place full of missed opportunities that I can only hope the museum curators and staff rectify over time because they have a foundation there for something truly wonderful. A museum of toys that transcends nostalgic splendour to become an eye-opening journey behind a global pastime. But it's not there yet. Or at least, it wasn't when I visited in late July. I knew before we arrived in Singapore that the place had history, that it had great food, tall buildings, busy people, low crime, 
high-density living, humid weather patterns so reliable you can almost set your watch to them. I knew it was a megacity, likely to be as chaotic as it was famously orderly. But what gets lost in its global identity as a city of banks and business and skyscrapers, and rules and order and high-tech, high-density life, is some of its soul. So much of Singapore's soul, when you dig beneath the surface, seems playful. It's a place with touches of fun everywhere, stitched between all the layers of hardness. A place that, given the chance, will pour whimsy upon whimsy. I'll share with you a few little tidbits we found in the tourist part of town that presented some of the best whimsy of all. On the winding path up to the top of a 30-metre indoor waterfall, which is itself a fantastical notion, we spotted a few gigantic Venus flytraps made out of Lego blocks that were nonchalantly blending in with the real living flora of the conservatory. Towering over a city of skyscrapers, I enjoyed glancing up whenever we were in view to see the architectural playfulness of Singapore's famous Marina Bay Sands Hotel. The hotel made famous for its infinity pool with an unobstructed view out over the city. What I liked, though, is that the hotel looks from afar as though it's composed of a massive boat marooned atop three tall buildings, almost like a retelling of Noah's Ark. In the same area, within the gardens, by the way, we nearly missed a playful light show, thanks to not one, but two misunderstandings by the venue staff we asked for help. It was a very cool, pre-programmed after-dark lights display that brought several of the trees to life in perfect synchronization with a piece of classical music. Lucky for us, it lasted for something like 15 or 20 minutes, so we were still able to catch the second half after racing around the whole bloody complex. This way and that, following these bad directions. And even right after we'd arrived in Singapore, when we took a walk into the city centre, we stumbled on a big crowd of people gathered to watch what turned out to be a rehearsal. They were getting ready to celebrate their federation as an independent state, and the government wanted to commemorate the occasion with a wonderful show of well-drilled entertainment. One of the showpieces of which was a group of skydivers spiralling down one after another in a mesmerising pattern to attempt to land on a stage on the riverfront though most of them, in this rehearsal at least, ended up stylishly skidding into the water. And that's the thing. Whimsy, wonder, fun, ceremony, solemnity, play. These things depend upon each other. Visiting Singapore helped me understand this more fully than anything I'd done before. See, I realise now that we don't get structure without play, just as most of our play serves to mimic an experiment with structure. It's not just that to play is to pretend, it's that we need to pretend in order that we may then become serious. And maybe if we really look around, we can see that our cities are as playful as us. <laughs>